Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 9th, 2018, and this is show number 709. Well, before we kick into the show, I wanted to start with two corrections slash additions from last week. They're both about my review of the Epson ES300W scanner. In the review, I said that I chose... PDF slash A as the format of the output, and that seemed to improve the scanner software's ability to provide accurate OCR. I also said, I have no idea what PDF slash A is. Well, luckily, Klaus Wolf commented on the post and answers that question. PDF slash A is a PDF designed for long-time archiving. Theoretically, it is designed to still be opened in many years. PDF is very flexible with what it allows these days, and all of that flexibility is hurting archival efforts. Thus, the PDF slash A format was introduced, reducing the flexibility and thus longevity. Really shouldn't have impacted OCR, but whatever works, works. Well, thanks for that, Klaus. Uh, that's really interesting. I have a feeling something else was actually going on with OCR when I was working on that, and that the choice of PDF slash A was actually a red herring. I think maybe the OCR software continues to crunch on the file even after it appears to be finished. I was trying to figure out why some of my scans weren't being recognized by Hazel. In the interface you can, of, of Hazel, you can ask a specific rule to be previewed by selecting a file. I'd select a file that hadn't been renamed as expected by Hazel, and I chose the relevant rule, and then it would say that all of the tests for recognition had failed. In this case, the, these rules are something like text matches Bank of America. But then I'd do something else, and I'd look back at that same screen without having touched it, and the rule would have changed for, to passing instead of failing. I don't know, maybe I was fiddling around with the PDF slash A thing right when the OCR software actually finished recognizing the text. In any case, thanks for the explanation, Klaus. The second comment was definitely a correction, and it's pretty funny. Remember I talked about that weird symbol that was on a toggle on the front? The same weird icon that looked like a typewriter that was on the uh, on the front and on the top. And on the front, there was a little slot. And I figured out it was to scan business cards. I tried scanning a business card, and while it worked once, it never worked again. Well, here's what Dave Price wrote in. Allison, the slot on the front left side is for scanning plastic ID cards, not business cards. Check out the video on the page on Amazon. Now, here's the really funny part. There's actually two videos on the Amazon page where he referenced. The one he meant me to look at was a marketing video from Epson where they very clearly demonstrate the use of the slot for scanning plastic ID cards. Not quite sure why you need to scan plastic ID cards, but you know, there you go. Well, the second video on that page, which, by the way, I watched first right after he said uh, to, to watch a video, um, the second video is a guide doing a video review of the Epson ES300W. In the video, he explains how much he likes this scanner, but how that darn business card scanner part doesn't work at all. He does exactly what I did, shoving the card in over and over again, sometimes having it catch and sometimes having it get caught, so he has to open up the back, and sometimes it just spits it right back out. I had to laugh. You think maybe they need to work on their graphics that explain what that little slot is? Well, I got to tell you, I'd like you to think about both these guys writing in, and if you ever notice that I've made a mistake, even a typo, like Sandy's been pointing out for me, these, these mistakes happen really often, and I'd really like it if you correct me so I can make public that correction. Now, sometimes your idea of a mistake might be my matter and my consideration of an opinion, and I might just argue with you about it, but that's super fun too. Thanks to Klaus and Dave for keeping me honest. 
Well, I'm really pleased to announce that my latest video tutorial for Screencast Online has been published. I decided to dig deep into two applications that I've recommended to you before, both of which are designed to figure out where all your disk space has wandered off to. The first is called Omni Disk Sweeper, which is free from the Omni Group. It's a text-based application, and it's very, very simple to use, so I don't spend a lot of time on it, but it is one of the tools I use really often. The second is Grand Perspective, and it graphically shows you the sizes of your files. I've been using Grand Perspective for years and years and years, but I, in teaching it, I discovered that it is much more capable than I ever even realized. The customizations and rules you can create in it are positively amazing. Go check out this tutorial at Screencast Online under the title, Monitoring Disk Usage. Chit Chat Across the Pond was super fun this week. I've told you before about the new Snob OS podcast with Nika Montfort and Terrence Gaines. I decided to ask Nika to come on Chit Chat to talk about her experiences growing up as a petite, girly girl, African-American, who also has a degree in computer engineering and one in electrical engineering, and who is working on her master's degree in computer science. We talked about her mentors growing up, who got her into computers, and what it was like being either the only woman or the only black person in each of her classes. She's delightfully open and happy and fun and has some really great stories to tell. I thought she was great to talk to, and Bart liked her so much that he's decided to have her on the next Let's Talk Apple, so you know she's good. Check out Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice and look for episode number 574 to hear Nika's stories. And of course, you can always listen at the link in the show notes. Speaking of Let's Talk Apple, I had the great pleasure of being a guest on the November recap episode of Bart's show, which aired on December 3rd. That's episode number 63. The other guest was the delightful Nick Riley. The main stories we discussed were the repairability effects of Apple's new T2 chip, the latest antitrust case against Apple about their app pricing, and the warming of relations between Apple and Amazon. It was great fun, and I hope you go check it out over at lets-talk.ie. Have you ever noticed that when you look at a beautiful scene with your eyes and then you take a photograph of that same scene, you suddenly realize that there's these terrible dark shadows with no detail or those puffy white clouds you were admiring all look like one continuous blob of white? That's because your eyes can perceive a high dynamic range of light, but our camera sensors can't do nearly as well as our eyes can. From a phone camera to a full-size digital SLR sensor, none of them can do as well as our eyes. Luckily, there are methods and tools to capture and reveal that high dynamic range, also known as HDR. Recent models of iPhone and Android models all include HDR modes, which do a pretty good job of capturing that range, but you can do even more with some tools for your computer. The darling of the HDR industry is Aurora HDR, but I'm not personally a fan of the policies of the company that creates it. The company's name is Skylum, formerly known as MacFun. You may remember that I was super excited years ago about a suite of products they created called Creative Kit 2016. You never heard me talk about them again because they have a habit of abandoning project products that are only a year old and they just start fresh. The products that I told you about in many cases don't exist at all anymore. And when they give you the new version, the upgrade is very, very expensive. With Aurora HDR, they didn't abandon the tool, but they charge a fortune for upgrades. The software is $99 to start with, and upgrade pricing is $59. 
I did some testing of Aurora HDR 2018 versus 2017, and I couldn't find that much to be excited about, especially after having to pay 60% of the price of the original, or you would have had to pay. I was testing it on a free license. But they also came up, out with it when it was still really, really buggy. I had a lot of trouble with it. So this upgrade pricing thing they do, $59, they do that every single year. They've done it three years in a row. All of that is a precursor to telling you about an HDR photo editor alternative called the Hydra for macOS from Creaseed. This is not to be confused with Hydra for iOS from Creaseed, which is an HDR camera app, not an editor. I may talk about that app at some later point, but let's stick to HDR photo editing for now. Now that we have a problem to be solved, creating photos that better represent what the eye can see, and a reason why this isn't a review of Aurora HDR, let's take a look at Creasy's Hydra for macOS. Just going to call it Hydra from now on, but remember, I'm talking about the Hydra HDR editor, not the camera app. Well, to start with, Hydra is half the price of Aurora HDR, coming in at $49 in the Mac App Store, or you can get it directly from the Creasy website. The website also offers a free trial, so you can try it out before you buy. Before we talk about how to use Hydra, let's review the concepts of HDR and tone mapping. Traditional HDR is where you take several images at different exposures. You take one at the optimum exposure, one underexposed, and one overexposed. You can take even more photos, going from 3 to 5 to 7 on up. Some higher-end cameras have a mode where they can take these photos in quick succession for you, so you get them taken within, you know, the same physical framing. The tools for HDR can forgive some differences in framing of each image, but a tripod is highly recommended for capturing multiple exposures. I'm too lazy to carry a tripod most of the time, though. The photos you merge into an HDR image can be simple JPEG images or uncompressed RAW images. Now, that was HDR. Tone mapping is the process of pulling out all of the data from a set of images that have been merged together. The applications take the detail and bright white clouds from the underexposed image and pull the shadows from the overexposed image, getting the best of both worlds. If you don't have multiple images, you can still do tone mapping, but it needs to be from an uncompressed raw image. A raw image contain high enough dynamic range in the file, but it can't expose all of it to you without the assistance of an HDR program. Whether you combine several images or use a single raw image, the process of creating the HDR image is called tone mapping. There are several ways to import your images into Hydra. You can use the standard image browser, which will reveal your photos library. I've never found that tiny window to be that useful with my excessively large library, but maybe it works for you. You can also import from your desktop, or you can enable the Hydra extension to photos that gets installed when you install Hydra. Images imported at the same time become part of a project inside Hydra. You can jump in and out of projects easily to work on different image sets without any need to save your progress. When you first open Hydra, it will show you a sample project that's really helpful to get started with the app. The sample project is three images of different exposure values. Hydra opens the sample project in what they call prepare mode. Prepare imports your images into a side panel that shows you thumbnails of each of the images. Next to the thumbnail, you can see the EXIF data highlighting this their exposure, their exposure value. You can also see the aperture, shutter speed, ISO, and focal length of the lens used. Next to each thumbnail, there's a gear, which when selected allows you to recalculate the exposure value by changing the aperture, shutter speed, and ISO. Now, you normally wouldn't want to mess with this, but the option is there in case one of the values is missing or incorrect. 
I'm not entirely sure how it could be incorrect or how you would even know if it was incorrect, but it's there if you need it. The prepare mode also allows you to apply raw sharpening before the images are combined. You can choose whether to have the images automatically aligned and whether to remove ghosts. If something moved between exposures, like people walking or leaves moving in a tree, it can cause ghosts, which Hydra can attempt to remove automatically. Unlike some applications, Hydra allows you to edit both the alignment and ghost removal. Editing image alignment alignment is a really interesting process. In the sample image, they show exposure 1, 2, and 3, with exposure 2 set as the reference. You'll see four circles on the screen. These are the four points being used during auto-alignment. If you select exposure 1 or 3, you can drag the exposure around and change its alignment with respect to the reference. You can also move those circles, but I never quite got the hang of that. By default, the reference exposure is a blue tint, while the exposure you're moving around is a red tint. This allows you to see the alignment all around the image to find the exact right placement. I put a screenshot in the show notes with the images drastically misaligned to show you and illustrate how this works and how it looks. If you don't like the red-blue tint, you can choose a gray difference or color blend view while you're aligning the images. But I think the red-blue works really well. You can zoom in on your image while you're working, and if you hold down on the command key while dragging, they say you can operate at sub-pixel precision. I don't think I can see sub-pixels, but maybe you can. I did manage in my experiments to completely bork the image alignment to the point I couldn't get it back. So luckily, they've included a reset alignment option and an automatically aligned option as well. Ghost removal can also be edited, and they do it in a really interesting way. The sample project has a woman walking across the grass next to a church. Next to ghost removal is an option to edit. The sample image has a scribbled circle around the woman, designating the area chosen to remove ghosts and which image is going to be the one to to be the reference image for that person moving. If you hit reset, the scribble disappears. Then you can flip through the three exposures, and when you see the woman where you want her, scribble around her. This will tell Hydra to use that image as the primary one and to remove the ghost for the other two in that area. You can then repeat for all areas of your image that have ghosts. You can use preview merging, and that'll allow you to see approximately how it will look after the ghosts are removed and the alignment is achieved. All right, now we're done with preparing our images. Let's actually do some tone mapping. When you hit the develop mode, you'll be shown 12 presets. Apps like Aurora HDR have tons more presets, varying from useful to completely crazy, with a significant bias towards the crazy end. Hydra has just the 12. You can't save your own presets, which is available in Aurora HDR, but interestingly, you can copy the adjustments you've made in one project over to another project. I tend to like the more realistic tone mapping options, so I lean towards the photorealistic or even no effects presets. Doesn't actually matter which preset you choose, though, because the next tab over is to make adjustments to the image manually, and that's where the real power is. I really like the adjustments options on Hydra, but they're definitely more limited than Aurora. What they do have is quite intuitive. Under tone mapping, they've got sliders for range compression, vibrancy, shadow boosting, and highlight recovery. The next session, uh, section under tone mapping has a pull down for scope. By default, it's set to overall, and you'll see sliders for the usual suspects, brightness, contrast, saturation, hue, details, and grain. With the pull down for scope, Hydra lets you apply uh, these adjustments to specific features of your image. You can choose to ind- individually modify dark or bright tones or by color with red, green, and blue as options. 
Now, it's often hard to predict what parts of an image will be affected, say, especially if something like in these color ranges. To aid you in figuring out where the adjustments to, say, red would be applied, there's a little eyeball that when you select will show you the intensity of red across the image. I have not seen that tool and that, that uh, method in any other tool. There's a vignette option in Hydra that only has radius control, which is pretty limiting. You can't change it from a dark vignette to light. You can't change the intensity of the effect, just the radius. I'm not sure that applying a vignette inside an HDR tool is that critical, though. At the bottom of the adjustments window, you'll see five circles where you can save snapshots of your work. Let's say you've got a pretty good-looking image, but you want to experiment some more. Rather than trying to figure out how to get back to this known state, click in a circle and tap the plus button to add the current settings as a snapshot. If you find you've snapshotted some settings that are not as pleasing as you originally thought, you can simply hit the minus button to remove that snapshot. Probably the most helpful button of all is the Reset Adjustments button, which gets you back to square one. I've said I'm not a big fan of Skylum, makers of Aurora HDR, but I gotta say I did miss some features of their software when working with Hydra. The main thing I miss from Aurora is the ability to affect the top and bottom of an image separately. It's natural to want to affect the sky separately from the ground, but Hydra, to my knowledge, has no such capability. Hydra does have a split view that allows you to see the before and after effects of your image adjustments. If you've merged multiple images, you can choose any one of the original images to use for the comparison, or you can use the un-HDR'd, untone mapped, but merged image. I find that sometimes I've gone way off the rails with my image adjustments, thinking this is looking great, but then seeing that comparison highlights if I've gone too far. In those cases, I sometimes find that the original combined image was better than what I've done, and it's time to start over. In the prepare mode we talked about earlier, Hydra includes a tool that will expose the extremes of your images, those areas that are too dark or too light to hold useful information. It's called the Flash Extremes tool, and uh, the icon looks like a lightning bolt. It flashes on and off constantly, showing black where an image is overexposed and white where it's underexposed. The flashing is a bit annoying, but it does allow you to alternately see the image itself and then the indicator of problem areas. The whole reason we're combining multiple images is to get all of the information possible across the scene. If you flip through your photos with the Flash Extremes tool turned on, you'll be able to verify that at least one of the images has the information for all of the areas of the scene. In develop mode, the Flash tool is still there, but it provides a slightly different function. With the Flash tool enabled, you can easily see the areas of the image that could still be improved. If you enable the flash tool while in split mode, you can see real time whether you've got the information in the original images while adjusting the image on the, uh, on the edited project. Took some time to get used to all that flashing, but it really is a unique tool to help improve your final image. All right, bottom line time. If you've been wanting to try your hand at HDR and want a dedicated tool for the job, I recommend giving the free demo of Hydra from Creacy to try. It's easy to use, and for $50, it's more affordable than Aurora HDR. It's definitely not as capable, but for many, it might be easier to learn. There is another option, though, and that's Affinity Photo, which I've talked about many times, for the same $50. Not only is it a pretty good Photoshop replacement, it also has HDR capability. You can import multiple exposures and do many of the same types of adjustments as are available with Hydra. It has more presets, and it also allows you to create what they call overlays. Overlays are a way of applying adjustments to just part of an image. For example, with Affinity Photo, you can apply a gradient overlay, which allows you to make adjustments to just the sky or just the ground. 
the thing I was missing over in Hydra. You can also use a paintbrush to apply adjustments to very specific areas of your image, which can really improve the way it looks. Like if you've got one bright spot, you can paint over that and then affect just that area. On the other hand, Hydra's image alignment tools and ghost removal control is much more advanced than I've seen in Aurora HDR or Affinity Photo. Their Flash Extremes tool is different than similar tools in other applications, and I like how it works. Hydra is easy to learn that I mentioned that before, and that's a good thing because their manual hasn't been updated since they did a major redesign of the interface. You'll have to figure it out on your own, but if I could figure it out, I'm sure you can too. I think it's great that we have all these amazing options available to us for creating HDR and tone map images. It's one of the reasons we like using the Mac so much. Go check out Hydra at creaseed.com. Just two months ago, I told you about the Excel Thunderbolt 3 dock I was testing to provide added functionality to my Thunderbolt 3 equipped MacBook Pro. I had a Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock to which I compared it. I really like the Excel, especially for the price of $250, which was $50 less than I'd paid for the Belkin. Sadly, I had to give the Excel back, and I was sad because I lost ports going back to the Belkin. When I posted the review of the Excel dock, Ryan Officer, uh, also known as Creative, what, how do you say this? Creative Vast Arts on Twitter mentioned that he really liked his dock, the CalDigit TS3 Plus. I looked at it and it looked great, but I had no excuse to get one. I already had the Belkin. I reached out to them to try to get one to review, but I didn't hear back. So I tried just not to envy Ryan too much. But then something wonderful happened. Steve's Belkin Thunderbolt 2 dock failed. That meant I could give Steve my Belkin dock, my Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock, and get the CalDigit TS3 Plus for me. Well, the CalDigit TS3 Plus is $301 on Amazon, so it's not an inexpensive purchase, but it has so many ports, and it has the right kind of ports, at least for me. In my Excel review, I explained that the main problem I have is not enough USB-A ports. The CalDigit TS3 Plus has five USB 3.1 Type-A ports. Five! That's more than any of the ones I've tested myself. Having five USB-A ports means I can leave a couple of lightning cables plugged in, just in case I need them. It's positively glorious. By the way, the OWC Thunderbolt 3 dock also has five USB-A ports, but I have not tested that one yet. OWC did make some different choices, like using eSATA on the device, that I don't really like. I don't need those, and it's lacking in some other ports, but it's a good deal for $255 if those are the right ports for you. One of the most attractive things about the CalDigit TS3 Plus, other than its gluttony of useful ports, is the size. Most docks are long and flat, which is actually an annoying shape to lay out on your work service. The CalDigit TS3 Plus is wee tiny and it can lay down or it can stand up on its edge. On edge, it's only one and a half inches wide by less than four inches deep. In contrast, a dock like the XL is 9.5 inches wide and three and a half inches deep. Now, don't let the diminutive size of the CalDigit TS3 Plus fool you. She's mighty in what she can provide. Did I mention five USB Type-A ports? Do you need more USB 3.1 ports? Well, the CalDigit TS3 Plus also has two USB 3.1 Type-C ports. That's seven total USB 3.1 ports. Crazy talk. I like how they've distributed them as well. Four of the USB Type-A ports are on the back and one is on the front. One of the Type-C USB ports is on the back and the other one's on the front. Now, let's talk about Thunderbolt, since that's why we're here. The CalDigit TS3 Plus has two Thunderbolt 3 ports. 
One is clearly marked on in the photos as, as saying computer. I should mention that every port is clearly marked. With the other docs I've tested, it was sort of a guessing game to figure out which port provided which functions. Since Thunderbolt 3 and USB 3.1 both come out of USB-C ports, it's very important to have those markings be clear. You want to know which ones are the Thunderbolt ports. Well, the Thunderbolt 3 ports have a lightning bolt, or I guess that's a Thunderbolt, which makes no sense, right? Because how are you going to hear see a Thunderbolt? That's something you hear. It's not something you see. It's really a lightning bolt. Anyway, I, don't get me off on that. Uh, the USB 3.1 port on the back says USB 10 gigabits per second. Interestingly, the USB 3.1 port on the front says 5 gigabits per second. So keep that in mind if speed is your highest priority. But again, it's clearly marked so you know. I plugged my MacBook Pro into the Thunderbolt 3 port that was for the computer, and then I put my 5K LG display into the second Thunderbolt 3 port, and everything worked perfectly. By the way, the CalDigit TS3 Plus will support one 5K display or two 4K displays. The CalDigit TS3 Plus will also charge your laptop at up to 85 watts, which is close close enough to the 87 watts the beast of a 15-inch MacBook Pro requires. I love having just that one cable from my Mac to the dock, and then I let the dock do all the heavy lifting after that. After a while using the CalDigit TS3 Plus, I started to get an error saying that a USB device was using too much power. Now, I've actually seen that on other docks as well, and I was never able to track it down, working with the companies trying to figure out the root cause. I did a search on the CalDigit support pages, and I learned something really interesting that the CalDigit TS3 Plus can do. The support article explained that you can use an iPad Pro with a Type-C port directly to both transfer data and charge the iPad Pro through the dock. But if you try to do that out of the box, you will get the USB power warning that I've been seeing. Now, in my case, I was not charging an iPad Pro with my dock, but I did have a Qi charger for my iPhone. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not the highest quality charger. I think I paid 12 bucks for it. And maybe it's drawing excessive power. In any case, this support article talking about charging an iPad Pro came with instructions to install a piece of software called USB Charging and Super Drive iPad iPhone Support Driver. I thought, hey, maybe this would solve my problem, so I installed the extension. The good news is I did not get any errors anymore with my iPhone sitting on the Qi charging dock. So I thought, let's do a stress test. Let's plug in the 12.9-inch iPad Pro into the CalDigit TS3 Plus via USB-C and the Qi charging dock and see what happens. Well, after the iPad annoyingly launched iTunes to sync and began charging, just like they said it could, I didn't get any power warnings at all for about five minutes, and then I got the power warning. Started thinking. I unplugged the iPad Pro, thinking maybe that pushed it over the, the, the edge, having both installed, but I left the Qi charger plugged in with my iPhone sitting on it, and I waited. Without the iPad Pro adding to the USB charge load, all was good, and I didn't see the USB charging warning again. I haven't gone back and tested with the iPad Pro, but uh, I don't actually need it to do that, so uh, I was real happy that that warning went away on my Qi charger. Now, you know I'm not a fan of reading manuals, but the manual for the CalDigit TS3 Plus is really well written and organized and explains things quite well. Their support article for the issue that I had uh, with the the, uh, USB charging was very well done. It had good screenshots and explanations of why you'd want to install the driver in the first place. 
I do kind of wish the support articles allowed you to peruse them more easily. You can't scroll through them. You have to keep guessing on which search term you might get a result. If you guess wrong, there's no indication of other articles and and maybe other subjects that might help for your search. The CalDigit TS3 Plus comes with gigabit Ethernet and digital optical out. I've never once used digital optical, but perhaps someone of you out there might need it. On the front, there's a headphone jack, which of course is essential to me. Now, when I was first working on this, I had a, a few problems with it that I talked about in the blog post that it, I, I, my system seemed to start losing track of where that headphone jack. But at the same time, I was testing a new app from Rogue Amoeba, Loopback 2, and I had a lot of trouble with I think I might not be using it correctly yet. So now I've rolled back and I've been using the older version of Loopback and my headphone jack is working properly right now. I, I'm not entirely sure whether it was a screw up on my part with Loopback or whether there was something wrong with the uh, the dock. But so for, since I've, I've gone back to the original Loopback, things have stabilized. So I got to go back and test Loopback some more and figure out what I was doing wrong. One of my favorite additions with the CalDigit TS3 Plus is the inclusion of a UHS-2 SD card slot. Anyway, let's just call it an SD card slot, right? It's one of those really satisfying card slots where it's spring-loaded as you shove it in so you're sure you have it successfully inserted. None of the other docks I've used have sported an SD card slot, so I've had to use a little USB hub when I use my big girl camera. CalDigit TS3 Plus has a docking utility app you can install if you so choose. The problem that it aims to solve is how annoying it is to have to eject every single mounted drive separately from your Mac before disconnecting from the dock. I only keep one drive mounted, so I haven't installed and tested the utility, plus they have the same capability via Parallels Toolbox when I need it, but it's cool that they have this tool available for you. You might be wondering why I've been so precise in always calling this dock the CalDigit TS3 Plus instead of just saying CalDigit. That's because on their website they talk about the CalDigit TS3 and the TS3 Lite. As far as I can find, these docks are no longer for sale. The TS3 had eSATA ports, and I guess those are no longer de rigueur now that we have Thunderbolt 3. Bottom line time. I have to say that I love the CalDigit TS3+. Plus. I love all the ports. I love the clear labeling that is well explained in the manual. It's not the least expensive of the docks I've used, but it's definitely providing the most value to me. Right now, I have plugged in Bose headphones, two lightning cables, a Qi charging, iPhone charging dock, an Apple Watch charger, a Logitech C920 webcam, my Shure MVI XLR to USB mic interface, a 5K LG monitor, and I have gigabit Ethernet plugged in, and I still have two open USB-C ports, a full-size display port that I could plug in my Apple Cinema display if I wanted to, and that mysterious digital analog, I'll get it yet, digital audio output port that I guess I'll use someday. In the review I just finished about the CalDigit TS3 Plus dock, I told you everything I had plugged into it. If you look at that blog post, you'll see that everything on that list that can be bought via Amazon has a link to Amazon, including the CalDigit TS3 Plus. If you follow those links and actually buy any of those items, a small percentage of the price you pay may come back to help the show. Heck, you can click on those links and then buy Birdseed, and even if that purchase will go to help the show. It's one of the two ways I can keep the podcast cost-neutral, and it doesn't cost you a dime. Thanks to all of you who've been using the Amazon affiliate links to do your holiday shopping. You guys know that I'm not a huge listener of music, and to be honest, Steve doesn't play music uh, that often either. There are times that we like it, though, like during the holiday season. Steve loves to play the Charlie Brown Christmas music and other classics. 
Okay, Dorothy, I know you don't think anything after the 1800s can be called a classic, but other people do. I hear about people who install Sonos speakers and pipe music all over the house, and they seem to love it. I find that fascinating that families enjoy that because it would annoy the heck out of me if someone else in my home decided what music I was going to be subjected to in the room I was in or any music at all. Maybe I don't want to listen to anything. It would have to be a highly regulated multi-vote system in my family for me to even agree to this as an option, except at Christmas. We decided to have an open house this past weekend to celebrate the completion of our five months of misery remodeling our house. Normally, we would put Steve's favorite five CDs into our 1993 Sony CD player and cycle those songs over and over and over again. The audio would come out of the large speakers he got around the time we got married 35 years ago. We have a HomePod, which gets very little exercise, so I thought it would be fun to maybe use that. We even have a family plan for Apple Music for no apparent reason, so we could expand our horizons beyond those five CDs using Apple Music on the HomePod. Well, the HomePod lives on top of the refrigerator in the kitchen. So I unplugged it from there and I put it in the living room on top of the vinyl record player. I tell you, it's like a wayback machine in our living room. We have our original furniture because nobody ever sits on it. So it looks like the day we bought it. Anyway, I asked HomePod to play Christmas music and it sounded great, but only in the living room. I wanted a way to extend this music throughout the house. I suggested to Steve that this was a good excuse to buy another HomePod. He didn't think that was the wisest use of our money since, as I mentioned, our HomePod doesn't get much exercise as it is. I remember hearing all kinds of excitement when AirPlay 2 came out. AirPlay AirPlay is the technology that lets you throw audio from your iOS or Mac to HomePod or Apple TV. The advancement that came out with AirPlay 2 was that you could throw the audio to multiple Apple devices at the same time with no noticeable lag between them. Of course, our house is riddled with Apple TV, so I decided to see if I could make AirPlay 2 work for me. The good news is that while our audio in the living room is from our childhood, the speakers hooked up to some of our TVs are quite modern and sound great. Since I needed the HomePod to be in the living room, I took the fourth generation Apple TV from my bedroom and I hooked it up to the kitchen TV. That TV has an old JBL speaker dock that was made for a 30-pin dock connector iPod, but it turns out it has an audio input jack, so Steve takes audio out of the TV, pipes it into the JBL, and it really sounds pretty good. That's modern compared to the living room, right? Anyway, I already had an Apple TV 4K in the family room where our best audio lives. We've got 5.1 surrounds on blah, 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 powered subwoofer. Anyway, Steve has an Apple TV in his den hooked up to a TV with a nice sound bar and a subwoofer up there. In the music app, I started up the Christmas playlist. In Control Center, you can then see the audio that's playing, and there's two tiny little arcs in the upper right corner of the audio icon. If you tap on that icon in the corner, it brings up AirPlay to the audio you have playing. Below the audio controls, you'll see your iOS devices, followed by the other audio devices to which you can AirPlay. Actually, I said that wrong. You can see your iOS device, and followed on following in that is you can see the other audio devices to which you can AirPlay. If you have newer Apple TVs, Generation 4 and 4K, and HomePods, you'll see them listed with circles to the right of them. They look like radio buttons, so you would think they would toggle from one to the other, but the circle actually means you can add them simultaneously, so you can put little, they're really checkboxes. If you see a device listed, but there's no circle, like an Apple TV Generation 3, that means it doesn't support AirPlay 2, so you can only play to it and nothing else at the same time. I tapped all of the AirPlay 2 capable devices and audio immediately came out of only some of them. 
Everything's fiddly, right? And the weird thing about this setup is that the TVs have to be on for airplay to be able to play. This is true even on setups like our family room where we have an audio video receiver that sends the audio directly from the Apple TV to the speakers. You still have to have the TV on. In some cases, tapping the Apple TV in question turned on the TV automatically, but in our kitchen with a really cheap Vizio hooked up to that JBL speaker, I had to turn it on manually. I also had to flip some of them on and off a few times in the AirPlay screen to get them to play nice, but eventually they all joined the party. One thing I found interesting is that I could control this hive mind of audio without using my phone. I hollered out, hey, yes, lady, and suggested she skip to the next song or play something completely different. HomePod took over and obeyed my commands. That got me to thinking, who was really controlling things? Was my phone even necessary anymore or had they all wandered off and weren't even using my phone? I decided to do an experiment. I fired up my phone, pushed the audio source to one of the Apple TVs, and then I put my phone in airplane mode and the music continued to play on the Apple TV. I even turned off my iPhone and yet the music still played on the Apple TV. So that was interesting. I mean, the Apple TV has the music app, so why couldn't it be playing it? But how did it know to keep going when I disconnected the phone? Well, next up, I tried connecting to two Apple TVs at the same time and putting my phone in airplane mode after they started playing. Again, both Apple TVs continued to play the music. I turned my phone off and both Apple TVs stopped playing the music instantly. Well, that doesn't make any sense. After restarting my phone, I tried to repeat the experiment, but that time all of the Apple TVs in the house and the HomePod just started pretending to be old devices and would only play one at a time. I quit music, went in and out of wireless settings, changed networks, and then only some of my AirPlay 2 capable devices indicated they could play simultaneously with that little circle. I fiddled some more and then they all got their little circles back, but none of them would actually connect. Around this time, I got bored and realized I had to work on show notes and I gave up on these experiments. I think once you get your Apple TVs and or HomePods playing your audio, I think you can stop using your phone to control them. But I can't be sure because my testing was inconclusive. What I can say conclusively, though, is that you don't have to go buy a bunch of Sonos speakers to play audio around your house. You only need a pile of Apple TV 4s or higher and or a HomePod or two and a TV connected to all the Apple TVs. Anyway, it was lovely to have holiday music making our entire house more festive during our party. I can also conclusively say that everything is fiddly. Okay, this is funny. Um, I didn't mention it up front, but I had a ton of audio problems. In fact, still having audio problems. Not sure if you'll notice the audio quality is slightly different. Um, this more, uh, this, uh, for this whole show, I was never able to get my audio into the discord chat. It's just been a big mess. So after I finished saying everything's fiddly, Steve said, uh, yeah, things were pretty fiddly on your audio tonight, weren't they too? So everything's fiddly. Anyway, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. I do have a good dumb question that I will hopefully do for next week. You can do your own by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. Want to follow me on Twitter? Check out at podfeet. Remember, anything you're looking for, anything good starts with podfeet.com slash whatever it is. You want to become a Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack group? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Want to join the Discord chat room I was talking about? Podfeet.com slash chat. Want to find those Amazon affiliate links? Why don't you go to podfeet.com slash Amazon? And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. 
Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.